0: Just tremendous. Uh, one of those weeks when I am privileged to get to rejoice in the same passage over and over every year. This um, You will find at Sovereign Grace that John is probably my favorite gospel, and I spend a lot of time, whenever there's a free week, I jump to John, usually, um, typically. So most of the time here, we go through books of the Bible, Right now we're we're in 2 Thessalonians, but this is Resurrection Sunday, and so we can't not talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we cannot not look at John chapter 20 verses 1 through 18. So let's dive in and read first the word, and then we will uh, go... Then we'll dig. So let's go. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloths. Which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they had not understood the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside weeping. Outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw the two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things, to her. May God add his blessing in the reading and the hearing of his word. Um, this story is beautiful because it represents so much and shows us so much of who we are in response to Jesus. You have these, these various characters here, these various uh, disciples and, and women who have come to the tomb. And we know from the other gospels that Mary wasn't alone when she showed up there but that they had come as a group to anoint the body of Jesus and they were hoping to find, basically find the guards there to roll away the tomb, let them go in and do the ritual anointing and then come back out and, and then roll the tomb back. And like They were expecting those things and what, what they found was something entirely different because they misunderstood what God was going to do in their midst. They misunderstood the work of God. Often this is what happens in in the church, in Christian, uh, in Christian church, and so often we find that there is a misunderstanding. Do I need to? It's too loud. Too loud. Yeah, I got it. It's no sweat. It. I can fix that. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Okay. I hope that's better in there for you and not drowning you out. Um, we have a speaker that goes into that room, so if you're ever in need of taking your kids, that they're loud, you need to go back there. You know, there's a speaker, so you don't miss out on the on what we're doing out here. So, um, the so where was I? Oh, often in the American church, we miss the 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 picture that's given here. Uh, we we are like the disciples and and Mary who run to the tomb and genuine hearts for the Lord, loving Him, knowing who He is, and we run to the tomb, and we miss the point when we get there. And God has given us, you can think about it across the board, God has given us a mission, and sometimes we miss that mission, and God has given us comfort and grace, and sometimes we miss that comfort and grace. God has given us community, and we miss the point sometimes of that community. And so often we miss the work of God, and it's a tragic missing but as we read here, I think the Lord wants to encourage us and wants to show us some things about His revelation and about the resurrection that, that have implications about how we live in community and who we are as Christians and what has happened. So, the first day of the week. You should not miss the fact that this is the first day of the week and it's in a garden. We should not miss the creation uh, symbolism that's used throughout the book of John. If you remember, his first miracle happens on seven days. Right, There's seven days recorded, and then he does a miracle in Cana, in the book of John. John is intentional. He writes out seven days for you, and then has the miracle at the very beginning of the book. He also, in chapter 1, describes the Word of God as that which creates all things. And then Jesus takes his disciples and goes... From the Last Supper to a garden where he wrestles, where he wrestles and he struggles and he sweats drops of blood while praying to the Lord before his hour of crucifixion, before his time of crucifixion. And you shouldn't miss out on that, that in chapter 3 of Genesis, this was laid out. This is the second Adam. This is the better Adam, the true and better Adam, like we sing in that song that we sing here, the true, Christ the true and better Adam. This is the better one, and he has come, and he has, he, unlike the first Adam, will conquer sin all together. And so he, he comes into a garden, and he gets, he has the temptation, I mean, imagine the weight of that. Imagine the weight of bearing the sins of the world on your shoulder, about to go before the Lord and experience the wrath of God poured out physically on a cross on you, and you are in a garden. This is our Lord. He is in the garden. Now, in victory, he's in the garden again on the first day of the week. There's an emphasis here on the first day of the week. This is why we celebrate on Sunday, by the way. This is why Sabbath for us, the Christian Sabbath, is Sunday. That's, that's why, because Sabbath in the Old Testament is the seventh day of the week. We celebrate on the first day of the week. We celebrate on the first day of the week because of this. This, is, this verse is what Hippolytus and Origen cite at, in early Christianity. Is why we celebrate on resurrection. This very verse, it was the first day of the week. Now, do you remember what happened on the eighth day in Genesis 3? No, you don't, because there's no eighth day mentioned. It's a trick question that I got you. If you were like, yeah, no, that happens after the seventh day. And the reason there's no eighth day mentioned is because Sabbath rest was supposed to be eternal. That's why. And we know this from Hebrews, right? That Sabbath has come in Jesus Christ and we have now eternal rest with him. Now, present, it's you have peace with God now. If you believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you have peace with God now. Sabbath rest is a condition of the soul that now pervades the life of Christians. So we see here on the first day of the week, the eighth day, effectively, the day when Sabbath is restored completely. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. We know that she came with other women uh, from the other Gospels, but they ran off and she stuck around They while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And the same language is used here to describe Lazarus and the stone being rolled away, right? When Jesus says, remove the stone, same thing. The stone has been taken away. Remove the stone. He's there's this we had a foreshadowing in chapter ten, right? Chapter ten and eleven we have this foreshadowing of the good shepherd who comes and then Lazarus being taken out of the tomb. Um, this this is all beautiful uh, symmetry in the gospel. Mary finds the empty tomb and she immediately thinks somebody has defiled her Lord and Master. Someone has robbed the grave. Someone has seen that this great man who everybody who's famous who everybody knew, someone has robbed him and robbed his body. And the Lord only knows why. She's, she is panicked. Someone has robbed, robbed the grave. Now, this is blatant disrespect. Christ taught love. Christ taught love and forgiveness and grace to those who are enemies of his. He taught forgiveness and grace. But this, this would lead to zealot rebellion. So, understand the weight of what Mary is looking at here. She comes to a tomb and she finds it empty and she is panicked because, oh no, everything my Lord taught us is thrown out the window in this motion. Who did this? Who did this? Everything he taught us about loving our enemies, about showing mercy when people hate us, about forgiveness to those who want to destroy us. Everything he taught us is thrown out the window because you robbed the grave. Even if you had noble intentions of, we're going to take our Lord and we're going to lie and say that he rose in three days, like they accused them of in the previous chapter. The Pharisees accused them of that, say that that's what they're going to do. And so she panics and she runs to the men, the leaders, the the others. She runs to these guys. So, verse 2, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, remember, we've talked copiously about why he's given the moniker, the one whom Jesus loved. That's not actually making him special. That is showing you how clingy he was as a person. Jesus loves him. Jesus loves those who wrestle with him. We know this from the Old Testament, right? He names his people Israel, wrestles with God. Jesus loves people who wrestle with him and grab hold of him and won't let go. And that's what we see over and over in the Gospel of John. This guy never leaves Jesus alone. It's like Jesus tells them, go get in the boat and go across the sea. And then he's like, I'm going to go over here and pray. You can imagine John going, all right, guys, you go get in the boat. We're going to go over here and pray. And Jesus is like, no, you too. You get in there too. Why do you think at the dinner he's laying up against you? Have you ever eaten on on the ground with a table where you're kind of reclined and you have a child that is laying against you? This is not a pleasant feeling. You go to get a cracker and you have to like shove the kid off, get the cracker and then let him come back on. Like that's, this is what they're telling you about John the disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's who that is, by the way, that's the one whom Jesus loved, is that he is constantly clinging to Jesus, constantly laying against him. And that's contrasted in the Gospel of John with Peter, who's constantly trying to prove himself to Jesus, who's constantly standing in front of Jesus going, Charge! And Jesus is going, hey, would you calm down? It's lunchtime. Over and over and over, these two are contrasted. Throughout the scripture, you've got three of them that are contrasted. One of them has gone at this point. Judas is the other contrast. He's gone. You've got three of them contrasted in the Gospel of John. These three act as foils for each other over and over and over. And here, Peter and John together run to the tomb. They hear of this. They, they are the ones she goes to. And they run to the tomb. She says to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Oh, what a joy it is to be the one that wrote the book. He says, we we ran together, but I'm faster than Peter. Everybody knows that. And he gets there first. Like this is, Just, I I want you to understand the character of these guys. They are not super holy men. They are normal. They are normal men. Peter is braggadocious and strong, and he's headstrong, and he runs into things. And he's, he's the one always running ahead. And John is the one who is mostly quiet, except for two times. One time when he and his brother come to Jesus and go, hey, can we sit at the right and left? And they ask their mother to do it. They're like, hey, mom, can you ask Jesus? Can we sit at his right and left? Just let that sink in. And then they, when they're coming up to Samaria, remember what they say in the Gospel of Luke as they're coming up to Samaria, and John and James are like, now do you want us to call down fire on these guys? And Jesus just puts his hands in his head. Oh, how long have I been walking with you at this point and you still don't know? Right? These, that's who these guys are. Peter is normal. He's, we can relate to them because they are like us. We can relate to Mary because she is like us. She comes to the tomb and she misses the point altogether. She misses it altogether. The, the disciples hear it and they run and they miss it altogether. And they run and John's worried about who gets recorded as getting there first. John gets there first. He He arrives first. They misunderstand things. And I want you to note here, when she comes to tell the disciples what has happened, she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. There's an application for us here in that when we are uncertain of the mission or purpose of God, when we lose track of what God is doing, we start to speak in ambiguities. They, they have, they did it. When you are in conflict, when you are in turmoil, when you are in difficult places, watch for that in yourself. Watch for when you start to give ambiguous answers. They, they, they did this, they do that, they do that. Well, they don't like me. We found it often when we would do ministry. For years we would do, we would do in particular, youth are the worst about this, and youth would do it, and they'd come and they'd go, everybody, everybody hates me. They all hate me. You know, whatever it was, they'd, they'd go and they'd say these things. They would, they, and you'd have these responses from people where they would feel self-conscious. And so you drill down to it, right? You'd go, who is they? Who is they? And they go, well, Sarah, <laughs> Sarah's mad at you then. Well, yeah, Sarah's mad. And you'd go, okay, so have you talked to Sarah? No, they, they, no, no, not they, Sarah. Like you're talking to Sarah. Christianity and conflict and dealing with each other is one to one. Jesus doesn't they you, He doesn't reduce you to a they. Don't reduce each other to they. When you're in conflict with somebody, it's that person. Deal with that person. And when there's something wrong, don't generally just scourge everybody. Well, they over there. No, no, deal specifics. Deal. Christ deals in specifics. He looks at you, and he deals with your sin directly. He's not worried. Like, he is worried about them. Don't get me wrong. He's concerned about other people. But he's, he's not necessarily going, okay, all of you, the general no, he's, he's looking at you. He, he deals with your heart and who you are. Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and she has to deal with what happens there. Peter goes to the tomb and he has to deal with what happens there. John goes to the tomb and he has to deal with what happens there. There's no they. They have names. But when we are in turmoil, watch for this. If you start amb- ambiguously blaming people, there's something wrong. You have missed something. So do what happens here. Do what happens here. Uncertainty fosters a lack of clarity in this story. And Peter and John rush to the tomb. And of course, we've got this very humorous writing by John. Note how many times he emphasizes he got there first. Just take a look at it. He wants you to know he is faster than Peter. As if that matters to the story. And it doesn't matter to the story. I think the Lord left this in here for our benefit. That we would see that no matter how quickly you get to the tomb... Jesus deals with you both the same. No matter how quickly you got to the tomb, no matter how fast your testimony got there, and no matter how long it took the other guy, maybe the other guy ran in first. Maybe he went inside and you didn't. Maybe he sees something different. We all have different struggles. Yours look different than mine, but we all have them. We all have different walks that we have gotten to the Lord. Like We all have been led to Jesus in different, unique, and powerful ways because he is great and he has come to us all and he knows every hair on your head and he knows everything of your heart. He knows every inclination of you. And when we take our eyes off that and when we start looking at other people, we begin to forget that this empty tomb is for you. This empty tomb is for me. John Elkins, this empty tomb is for John Elkins. This empty tomb is for you. It's not some generic big blanket thing. That's the beauty of our God. He is massive and distant and cosmological. I mean, the earth is his footstool. He hangs the stars on nothing. You are smaller than an ant comparatively. He has existed for eternity, he will exist for eternity. And to say has existed is my, uh, mind-boggling. That can't even apply to a literal eternal being who holds eternity within his character. Fantastic article for you to read about that is Augustine's On Time and Eternity. It's fantastic. It's very hard to find. If you want it, I can. I think I can find it and copy it for you. Um, it's public domain. It's not illegal. So, the... This Lord, this God, this cosmological being is intimate and personal with you and he knows who you are. And that's beautiful in this resurrection story that in his resurrection, you are the one who is supposed to see the empty tomb. You are the one. Peter and John give two different responses that are equally faithful. Both of them run to the tomb and John gets there and we see this in Christianity. He gets there, he investigates slowly, he stoops down, he looks in, he's not interested in running into the room and seeing the room itself. He's, he's pensively outside the tomb. He gets there first, but he's running outside the tomb. And he gets to the tomb and he waits and then Peter comes barging in like a bull. Runs right in, starts looking around. You can imagine John stopping and like stooping down and going, all right, I'll wait for Peter before we go in. And Peter just bolts right in. And John's like, come on, man. We were, we were a team. You know, and Peter just runs in. It's like frantically looking around. What happened? What happened? All while Mary is still outside, by the way. All while Mary is still standing there. She has come with them, evidently, because she's in the story right next. We see her. They're all standing there. Equally faithful, equally beautiful responses. John, quiet, investigative, slow. Peter, explosive and fast and overbearing. We have those Christians in our midst, don't we? We have Christians that come to faith in Christ and they just explode. They explode and they are loud and proud of Christianity. They are all over the place. They are studying deep theology. They are reading Jonathan Edwards for fun. I am a theologian. and I don't read Jonathan Edwards for fun. He is work. He is work. Oh, it's beautiful work. Don't get me wrong. And it is beautiful. But that guy is hard to read. And so is John Owen. And I read them because it's good for you. But there are men who come to faith in Christ who just... They, they're given a gift of just feasting on deep, heavy things and shouting from the mountaintops. And they're the ones who are doing street evangelism, the instant that they're saved. And then there are men who come to faith in Jesus, who are much more quiet and just want to live a peaceful life. And they sit outside and they contemplate the spider webs, like William Wilberforce. You know, he said, uh, I find that there's a great many things that God calls me to do and I'm at an impasse and I'm torn because I just want to contemplate the beauty of his creation and sit outside and wait for him all day long and not do anything. And just rest in my heavenly father. That's so poetic. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It doesn't get a lot done, but it's beautiful. Right? Now I can relate to that one. I'm I'm the artsy fartsy type. I'm the type that likes to paint pictures I and mean, as you can see. Like we we love art and I love art. I do poetry, this the we, we are this type of person, and, and I love to sit and just wait, and I'm the type that will sit outside with a cup of hot tea and watch birds and sketch things all day and go, this has been a beautiful day. And somebody will go, don't you have work to do? And I'll go, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is beautiful. These two expressions of faith are equally valid. And we see something about the resurrection of Jesus and what it does in the hearts of people. You see, if we were uh, another religion, another religious group, if if we were a group that demanded everybody look the same, then we would have one type of person that you're allowed to be. Every other religious group in history, one type of person is allowed. You have to conform to this one type of person. Whether it's legalistic Or emptying yourself so that there is no unique person of yourself. If you go east, by the way, if you've studied world religions, if you go east of Israel, if you can visualize a map in your head, you go east, I guess east would be this way for you. If you go east of Israel, you find eastern religions are all about emptying yourself, becoming no longer an individual, but joining the collective. If you go west of Israel, it becomes much more, you have to land in a checklist One, two, three. You have to match a checklist. You have to look exactly like the checklist in order to be be saved. But in Christianity, God says, Jesus Christ has saved you by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead has brought you life. And you are individually who he has created you to be and he lives inside you and begins to move and you become a unique expression of him. Every person becoming more like Christ wildly becomes more unique than the other person. We are the only place where every tribe, tongue, and nation can express the exact same song in their own language. We are the only place represented in all of religion, all of religious studies, Christianity is the only place where you are completely unique and individual by the grace and mercy of God. You are made different and it is beautiful and you sit next to people who are utterly different than you are. Every person completely unique. Oh, this is what the church is. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, every place on the globe, every type of person comes together and worships Jesus. And we don't look the same. This is, this is why the world looks all the same. They all clamor to be unique and individual. You watch them. You watch the world. They clamor to find their own unique individualism. They defy basic tenets of absolute truth. And as a result, they end up looking like one homogenous group of the same. When I was in high school, it was the, it was the ones who wore all black and were gothic, Right? They were unique. Oh, no, I'm totally different than everybody else. I look the exact same as my peer group. I do the exact same thing as my peer group. I say the exact same words as my peer group. I look just like this homogenous blob of people over here that are rejecting authority. Oddly enough, you reject authority and you suddenly begin to look like everybody else. But when you embrace the authority of Jesus Christ and you embrace the fact that there is a God who is authority and author over all things, suddenly you're unique and individual. And you have artistic expression. Did you know Christians ruled the artistic world for thousands of years? It's only been in the last hundred that we decided to allow the world to say that that's theirs. It's not. That's the domain of God, the infinitely creative artist. He made creation. He is the infinitely creative artist. At the end of time, he says, behold, I am making all things new. Do you know what that means? He's going to continue to create. It's a present tense active verb. He's going to continue to create. That's Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. He's going to continue to create in history. Things are going to continue to grow. I'm getting excited. This isn't in my notes. So we're going to keep moving. So he says, they come here. We've got these two explosive versions of Christianity. We've got this explosive guy, this introspective guy. And they see the grave close. They see them folded, and we know from the Gospels, all three of the other Gospels testify that they were clothed, they were folded, there's a face covering, a napkin. This indicates to them and to everyone around that this was not a robbery. People who steal bodies don't go to the extent of unwrapping them and then folding the clothes. That's not how theft works. That's not how theft works. And I can prove it. We were stolen from years ago. Somebody broke into our house. It was, it was wild. We had money sitting on the counter. We had, our house was kind of messy. We had money, literal like a pile of money that, that I had left on the counter because we were in a hurry to leave that night to go somewhere else. And I had left it on the counter and, and there was a laptop that was out on another place. They stole the TV and they stole a broken laptop. The TV was, you know, TVs are, we have very small TV anyway at the time, and they stole that. They tried to get some other things out of the cabinet, but they couldn't. They were obviously in a hurry. They ran and got the TV. They got the laptop. They bypassed the money that was on the counter. They walked right past my wife's jewelry, which she had left out. They walked right past everything of value and took a broken laptop and a TV. That's how theft works. Theft works quickly. And suddenly, this was not theft. Thieves don't stop and mop your floor. These people unwrapped the body, something unwrapped the body, folded the clothes, folded the napkin on the, on the place, set it neatly. They wouldn't have taken time to do that. They would have stolen the spices and then run. That's what they would have done. And they didn't. So, what did the disciples do at this point? Look at them. Look at what they do. They come in, they follow him. Verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. That's an interesting and weird line to put in here. They went back to their home. They went home. I think that that line is in here to remind us that Christianity is not lived out in a continuous flurry of events. Christianity is not lived out in a continuous flurry of events. Christianity is lived out in your daily, everyday context. They have seen the empty tomb. The resurrection of Christ has landed, and though they don't fully understand everything, we are told from the rest of Scripture, this is a gradual understanding for them, they believe. Though they don't fully understand, they believe, and so they go home. Christianity is lived out in the context of everyday life. Matthew chapter 20, as you go, or as you're going, make disciples of all nations. As you're going, at, in your everyday life, that's how that, that's how that's written. In your everyday life, make disciples of all nations. All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Look, this is this is what we are told to do. This is who we are as Christians. Christianity is not something lived out in a flurry of activity and events. It is something lived out in your everyday life. You will find your most prominent growth is done in the quiet hours when you are just doing your normal routine. When you are doing your normal, disciplined routine. That's when your most strong and prominent growth is given. There's much to be said about methodology and and church ministry and application. And I would simply leave that here because obviously I'm a little excited about that kind of thing. And so we're going to press forward because there's much more for us to see in this passage. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped in to look into the tomb. This woman has still not gone in. She is still lingering outside the tomb and waiting. And the grief that has poured over her heart is still there. She is weeping so much so that she's about to miss divine revelation of two angels. Look, verse 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, remember this is a respectful term, woman, this is... This is the same term Jesus used for his mother, woman. So he says, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they, again, ambiguous, they have taken my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around. Just pause there for a minute. She just saw two angels, clothed in dazzling white. And she is so overcome with her own circumstance and grief that she can't recognize that they're angels. Can you imagine being in that much despair? Some of you can. This is a relatable story. I know it sounds funny. But some of you can. Some of you have been there. You've been there where everything in your world is falling apart. And God himself could land in front of you. But you are so in despair that you can't see him. And you're so broken that you can't handle it. And you're just weeping. That's where Mary is. She's looking in the tomb, weeping, and she sees two men in dazzling white. Now, that's funny. It's a funny part of the story. It's okay to chuckle. Like, that is a funny part of the story. She looks at these two men, and they say, Woman, <laughs> like they get her attention. Woman, why are you weeping? They are there to testify that, the, that he's, resur- he's resurrected, he's here. Why are you weeping? And she goes, they took him, and I don't know where they put him. And she turns around and walks off. We are often in the place of Mary where things are so, we are such deep despair that we, we can't see the work of the Lord. Our friends and our communities will rally around us and remind us of the deep truths of God, and we still can't see it. And we still can't see it, and they will they will show us great things, and they will they'll point us to the heavens, and they'll point us to Jesus's love and they'll show us look, this isn't the end, don't worry, heaven is coming and they will encourage us as we learned in first Thessalonians they will encourage us with the words of Jesus is returning and he's going to come back and don't worry he's going to set everything right, they will exhort us and they will lift us up and they will bind us up like it says to do in first Thessalonians four right to lift each other up and in first thessalonians 5 to crutch the ill and to bear with the weak and and we will do that with each other and we will do it and they still can't see and I want you to hear this morning that that's okay it's okay you can't stay there Jesus doesn't let us stay there but it's okay to be in that position where you look in in the tomb, and you know, you know salvation has come, and you know the resurrection has happened, and you know Jesus is coming back, but you are still looking in a grave and are scared out of your mind. That's okay. And here's why it's okay. Because Jesus doesn't let you stay there. But he's the one that comes to get you. Oh, this is beautiful. This is an incredible truth. Mary, this single woman, you, don't let that get lost on you, by the way, single, God comes to a single, the first revelation of Jesus here is to a single, unmarried, whether widowed or, or broken, whatever, whoever, however that works with Mary Magdalene, and she is single, and she is lowest caste. She's the lowest caste in their society a single woman with no children and no prospects for a husband. Jesus shows up to her first. You shouldn't you shouldn't lose that. You shouldn't miss that. That is a beautiful Beautiful, powerful thing. He comes to the most broken and lonely people. Not only is she single, she's also the most broken in the story. She can't even recognize the two angels sitting on the bed. She's, she's weeping so fragile, so broken, that she's lost everything in this moment. And she is desperate. She's weeping. Perhaps she didn't cross paths with the others. We don't know why they are gone and she's still there. But the angels intervene. And she turns around, turns around, turns away. But when the angels can't work, watch what happens. When the angels can't get it, when the when the angels can't get past the despair, when the messengers of God and the community of faith can't get past the despair, when they are when this woman is utterly broken and destitute, look at what Jesus does. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know. That it was Jesus. So she turns around and there he is. There he is. Jesus comes to this broken woman who is in desperation and shows himself. Here I am. And she turns around. But she's so overcome with her despair that it takes her a couple minutes. She's, so, she's still weeping. I, I, I tend to think that she couldn't even look him in the eye. Have you ever been that broken where you can't look somebody in the eye and you're just looking around the room and and everything's lost and you know that you're done for and there's no hope and all of a sudden you 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 make eye contact with somebody and it just crumbles, everything crumbles and you weep and you can't, so you're trying not to look people in the eye, you're trying, trying to be strong-willed and stiff upper jaw about it and your wife comes in the room and says, are you okay? And you go, no, I'm not. Right? That's, that's what's going on here. She is she is that that covered in despair. But Jesus comes and he, he says to her in verse 15, he said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Same thing that the that the angel said. Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be a gardener. I love that. He is the gardener. He's in the garden. He's the creator of the garden. Remember the 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 creation imagery all throughout the Gospel of John. He is the gardener. He's the one who made all this. He's the one who tends it. He's the one who keeps it. Thinking him to be a gardener. She's right and wrong. Right? She's thinking him to be a gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. Again, right and wrong. This is the one that took him away. This is the one who took him out of the tomb. He walked out. This is him. He did it. If you have carried him away, show me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. I will take him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Oh, he says her name. He says her name. Did you know, at the end of time, when Christ returns, we're given this picture in one of the churches of Revelation where you are given a rock with your name on it, it's kind of it's a weird thing in our culture to say, but it makes sense in Rome, but you are given a rock with your name on it, and only you and he know it. And you, you're going to read that and go, that's, that's who I am. That's my name. Names mean something. Names matter. That's who I am. This is who I am. I am this. You're going to be given a name by the God who created you, and he knows exactly who you are. And I don't mean he knows exactly who you are and you don't like what he knows about you. No, it's, I mean, he knows exactly who you are to the point where you're going to read it and go, "Yep, yeah, that's me. That's my name. Jesus turns to this woman and says her name. And she suddenly recognizes him and cries out, Rabboni, which means teacher. It's rabbi in Aramaic. And, and Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go and tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. She grabs him and holds tight to him. And I told you at the beginning, God loves people who cling and wrestle with him. John is called the beloved because he's constantly doing it. Jacob is renamed Israel because he wrestles with God and Israel will wrestle with God all throughout the Old Testament. They will strive with Him. They will grab hold of Him. They will hold tight to Him. Oh, Christian, hold tight to God. Hold tight to Jesus. In those moments of utter despair, when, we've, when we see a tomb and all we see is death, and when we turn around and we, we think all we see is some gardener, remember that He is the gardener. He's the one that exited the tomb. He is the one who is... Righteous above all else, who has saved you and redeemed you. He has died on the cross for sin and risen again that all who would believe in him would have eternal life. And this is not a joke. And it's not a religious practice we do on Sundays only. But this is life. And life abundant and free. It's done every day when you take a breath, it's done in every moment of your day, it's done in those moments when you're cooking at the table and your kids are going crazy and you don't know what to do and you're stirring the pot and that stirring of the pot gets real aggressive because you're having one of those days. It's in those moments that we remember Jesus Christ resurrected from the tomb and we have life and life eternal. Christians are the happiest people on the earth for this reason. We have life, and we have life eternal, and it is beautiful and powerful and true. And he says, Do, you know, he said the reality is that we, we need to get to work. Mary clings to him and grabs him, and he says, not now. Don't cling to me. It's time to work. It's time to work in the kingdom. It's time to get to work for God. This is, go tell my brothers, it's time to that we do it. It's time the church begins to move and do the work. That's what he says to her here when he says, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended. It's time to get to work. Go get my brothers. Go tell them. Go tell everybody. We win. That's what he's saying. Go tell everybody we've won. Victory is here. And then this is how you know he says it. My father, I'm going to my father and your father. I'm going to my God and your God. All throughout the gospel, he's been going, he's been telling his disciples, if you knew my father, if if you were, if you know me, you know the father. He keeps saying that now it's not my father, it's mine and yours. You are adopted into the kingdom of God. You are his child. You are his kids. So therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children. So therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Imitate me. Paul says it this way Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. We are to pursue knowing Jesus now at a level that we never could. We were never able to. But being free from sin and resurrected to new life, we can now. And Mary is told to go get his brothers and bring them. And she went and announced to the disciples I have seen the Lord. And that he has said, and I've seen that he's said, in, and he told him that, that he has said these things to her. Oh, what an announcement we bring to the world that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sins and rose again, that you would have life. And then he didn't leave you there. He didn't stop, but he rather indwells your spirit. And in, in, in Colossians chapter three, verse 10, he, he dwells in us, renewing us daily renewing you daily, making you something entirely new. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. The new has come. You are new, changed, altered, resurrected to new life. And oh, all you have to do is believe and trust. Trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And this is yours. Oh, how beautiful. How wonderful. And then he doesn't leave you alone. He walks with you. Are you kidding me? This is great. And we can run to the tomb... And we can be the slow, introspective one that stands outside and goes, I just don't understand the incarnation of Christ and debate it and wrestle with it. And we can be the one that runs in and goes, I got it all. I wrote a book on it. Right? We, got, we can be that one. Or we can be the weeping one in despair who's just overwhelmed always. And Jesus goes out of his way to reach us. The disciples get reached the same miraculous way. They go back to hide in a room again, which is hysterical they believe but they go hide in a room again and they lock the door this time and jesus shows up in the in the room with the 12 and thomas is there going i don't believe any of this you guys are making this stuff up and jesus is like i'm right here put your hands here come on feel it and then he breathes on them breathes on them the holy spirit of god this is I mean, this is our Lord. This is what He does with us. He doesn't leave you. He keeps you. He walks with you. And oh, we could revel in this all day. And I hope you will. I hope you will on this resurrection day. Father, we love you and trust you in all things. We are delighted in your presence. And we are delighted to to be yours. Lord, we pray that you would delight in us as we delight in you. Lord, we love you and we trust you in all things. Amen.